There's no way around it. Caring for a loved one with dementia is not for the faint of heart. We don't know what we don't know, and many families focus so much on the person with dementia that they forget to keep their eyes on the family member managing care, which can be catastrophic. In this podcast, we'll help you become more proactive and remind you to focus on yourself. We will share challenges and wins and guidance from professionals at every step in the journey of caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Welcome to the Eye on the Caregiver podcast. Joining us today is Rory Clark, managing partner and founder of Legacy Elder Law Center in Leesburg, Virginia. Rory has more than 30 years experience practicing elder law, estate planning, asset protection, and veterans affairs. Rory has traveled the same journey as we and so many others of you have, um, which is caring for a parent with Alzheimer's disease. Rory, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Michelle. It's a great pleasure. So, Rory, we share a passion to help educate family caregivers to someone with dementia on all aspects of their journey. We'd love to focus today in the conversation on veterans benefit programs that many families never really have heard about, but may be eligible. Um, and that's the VA aid and attendance benefit. Could you please take a moment and give our listeners an overview of this program? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, VA aid and attendance is a thank you program, kind of like the GI Bill that's available to U.S. wartime veterans and their surviving spouses. Uh, It is separate and apart from any disability program or service-connected disability program or what people may have heard recently about uh, drinking water at Camp Lejeune between 1953 and 1987. Uh, It's a program that provides a defined benefit, meaning a specific uh, dollar amount that's tax-free cash that the veteran or surviving spouse can use to meet uh, expenses if they're uh, uh, qualifying. Uh, And again, it does nothing to do with whether or not they were injured during service. Uh, It simply has to do with uh, being a thank you for helping the country. One of the things I always uh, like to point out is that even though it's administered by the Department of Veterans Affairs, it applies to more than just uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, and now the Space Force. There's actually uh, five pages of jobs that a person's loved one may have uh, held that helped the country during a period of wartime that could make them eligible for this program. Uh, some kind of make sense. Uh, Merchant Marine, uh, Public Health Service, they wear uniforms, of course. I think one of the most interesting ones is we helped a woman uh, just the month before COVID uh, get into an assisted living facility with the aid and attendance benefit. The only uniform she ever wore in her life was a flight attendant for Pan Am uh, flying airplanes into Berlin after World War II. Kind of a dangerous thing. They weren't sure the Soviets would shoot them down, and they wanted to make sure that if they were, captured, they'd be treated as prisoners of war under the Geneva Convention. So uh, people need to know that if anyone has served the country, they don't necessarily have to have served in one of those six uh, formal uh, service branches. That's so interesting. And when you say served during wartime, that would include like Desert Storm, where someone maybe wasn't in combat, but they were in the military during that time? 
Well, so that's a really great question. The uh, eligibility, uh, first thing is it applies to people who are 65 years or over, uh, and their doctor, not the VA, says they need help to be safe. There's a service eligibility requirement, and then there's an income or net worth eligibility, which we can talk about in a minute. But service eligibility means for most people who are currently looking for help, that they served 90 days on active duty, one day during a period of wartime, and that they weren't dishonorably discharged. That sounds very simple and straightforward. In fact, this is one of the troubling things about the program is so much is buried down in the definitions written by the bureaucrats that it can be a little bit misleading. So we we have to start with what are wartime, and it's not Congress declares war like uh, the law is. It's whatever's on the list uh, at the VA regulation. So we start with the Mexican incursion to catch Pancho Villa. We have two (laughs) real wars, meaning declared by Congress, uh, World War I and World War II. Uh, We have police actions and conflicts like Korea and Vietnam. And we have uh, the War on Terror, which began in 1990 and is still continuing to today, 32 years continuously at war. So there are some uh, what we call donut holes. There are some gaps. Um, For example, Grenada uh, does not apply. But you touched on a really important question, Michelle. It's the fact that the veteran, when we're talking about the veteran, uh, as opposed to the surviving spouse, that the veteran was in service during wartime, not that they faced the enemy in danger. So we have lots of clients who were in Japan during Korea or in Germany during Vietnam or in Texas during Desert Storm. (laughs) And it doesn't matter. It's the fact that you could have been sent in harm's way. There's only one small exception that's worth noting. Um, If you think about it, how could you, it doesn't make sense to offer a benefit to, say, a Marine who served in Germany uh, in 1973, but not provide a benefit for those unofficial advisors who were actually on the ground in Vietnam in the, uh, you know, say, 1960, 1961. So there is one small additional uh, gap that uh, for people who were actually on the ground before we were really kind of officially in Vietnam, if you were on the ground in South Vietnam or in the waters around South Vietnam, uh, you get a little bit of an add-on, uh, some extra eligibility periods. But otherwise, it's just the fact that you were on active duty during one of those periods of wartime that matters. Wow, that's it's super interesting. Um and just the definition of, 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 you know, active duty during wartime and what they define as wartime. So you mentioned something about, um, about the second part of that is income and net worth requirements. So can you give us some idea of what those might be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's important to distinguish these because those who are looking for benefits for a loved one, uh, maybe also comparing benefits uh, uh, available under a program called ABD Medicaid, which is a long-term care insurance program that 
comes along with or may come along with Medicare and Social Security. So there are distinct eligibility rules, some of which the financial ones are actually more stringent than Medicaid and some of which are more generous. So let me uh, summarize them. There's an income rule and there's a net worth rule. What's more stringent about this program than some others is that the VA looks at household income. And I think the best thing to explain here is that, and this this becomes perfectly clear when people try to understand what the income rule is, and I'm going to say it real fast, but nobody should try to write it down because it, it, it really isn't very helpful. If the veteran or their surviving spouse spends more on unreimbursed medical expenses than they make in regular monthly income, they meet this income test. And it sounds like you need an accountant to figure that out. What it, here, here's what the rule is about. This isn't intended to make somebody rich. This isn't intended to cover every possible expense out there. The purpose of this program is to replace money that's lost that our veteran, our surviving spouse, uses to eat and to have the roof over their head. That's why it's a defined benefit. You know, uh, a married couple may be getting, you know, $2,500 a month, uh, $25,000 to $35,000 a year. Uh, it isn't going to cover every possible expense for every person. But what it does do is it replenishes those funds that are lost that we need to just sort of hold our home and hearth together. So if you're spending more than you make in regular income on care, the purpose of the program is to replenish it. Because of that, they look at household income. So they look at the vet and the spouse's income, or if there's a child living in the house, they look at all of that income together when they do that calculation for income purposes. Generally speaking, though, uh, we, we're down to, uh, uh, because of age, we're talking about modest income, maybe Social Security, you know, coming in. So the way to explain it is if husband and wife are together or it's a single person and they make $1,500 a month in regular income and they spend $1,501 on care, then they are now income eligible. Uh, That unreimbursed medical expense could be co-pays for hospital stays. It could be in-home caregivers. It could be paying family members to help provide care for you. You could have your niece or your granddaughter come in and you could pay her. uh, And uh, this money could help uh, defray those expenses. So, So that's the income test. And the important thing to remember there is it's not intended to cover the most expensive nursing home in New York City. It's to make sure that people still have a roof over their head and and food to eat. Most common category, uh, the benefit equates to about twenty five, twenty six thousand dollars a year. Uh, the, Are there limits to that to that benefit? I mean, is that is that the limit twenty five thousand a year or? So there's, Um, yeah, so it's a defined benefit. So a veteran married to a a veteran, both of whom qualify, the benefits uh, about $3,500 a month. I think that's about $36,000 a year. The benefit for a veteran with a spouse is about $26,000 a year. The veteran alone 
is about $2,000 a month. These are all tax-free. And one of the things that uh, I would like to point out is that the surviving spouse who may never have worn a uniform in his or her life is entitled to a benefit uh, when they are the surviving spouse. That So there's one benefit per vet. If the veteran dies, the surviving spouse then steps into those shoes. So the benefit for a surviving spouse, uh, if my mom had survived my dad, for example, she'd be entitled to about $1,250 a month, about, I guess that's about $15,000 a year. Again, nobody's getting rich, but for the person who just needs a little extra in addition to their regular monthly income, we often find that it's just enough to knock the bill out at an assisted living facility so that the family doesn't have to do a deep dive into the into the life savings. So that's the income side, but we should absolutely talk about the net worth side. Uh, it, if for no other reason, these rules changed much to the benefit of the vet and the surviving spouse a couple of years ago. We used to have, I won't we'll talk about it a long time because I don't like to emphasize things that aren't the rules anymore, but just to explain that there's a change, we used to have to demonstrate that our client was needy. And holy cow, how in the world do you do that? The new test is that if our veteran or surviving spouse has a VA net worth of less than approximately $138,000, then they meet the uh, net worth test for this. But here's the key. This is the most important thing for people to hear today. It isn't net worth the way you think of it. It's not net worth the way I think of it or your bank thinks of it. It's not even net worth the way the IRS thinks of it. This is net worth the way the VA determines it. And there are three important things that are not included in the calculation of VA net worth. First and foremost is the personal residence or what could be the personal residence of the person applying. So imagine uh, grandpa has left his home and moved to an assisted living facility. The value of that home that he owns is still exempt. Uh, or if he has a home that he could move back into, and certainly if he's still living at home, the value of that residence is totally exempt. So we find a lot of clients don't have what we think of as net worth of less than $138,000. But when you exclude their home, they may very well have a modest retirement account or investment account, but uh, a significant uh, a significant home. The second thing that's not included in net worth, according to the VA, is uh, vehicles. This is another change from a couple of years ago. The old rule used to be you could exclude the value of one automobile of any value. And the logic in that was we needed to make sure our vets and their spouses had a way to get to the doctor. <laughs> and if you made them sell the car or give away the car in order to get the benefit, how are they going to be able to get the health care that they needed in addition to the long-term care? For some reason, I cannot explain to you why, they changed the role from one automobile to vehicles with an S. So since 2018, we've taken the position that that bass boat that you own is a vehicle because you can get in it and go somewhere. We've exempted recreational vehicles. Uh, 
in addition to the personal residence, and we've never been challenged uh, by the VA on that. I just can't explain what their logic was in changing the rule. That's not my job. My job is to apply the rules to the benefit of my client. And if they want to let me take a motorcycle, an RV, and your uh, Lexus and exempt them all, I'm going to do it uh, every single Mm -hmm. time. The most important one is, and this is a, a policy of the VA, to encourage veterans to plan ahead and to protect their families. There's an unlimited exemption for amounts that they place in an appropriately designed asset protection trust. This doesn't mean they're giving away assets and they can't use them or that it can't be available for their family. It's not that at all. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. If they protect assets in a perfectly legal trust that prevents nursing homes and caregivers and creditors, like people who may have been injured in a car accident or credit card companies, from coming and taking the family money away, a reward for sheltering that money uh, and making sure that the whole rest of the family doesn't become dependent on government programs, right? That's the point here. Any amount we put in one of those trusts, as long as we do it 36 months before we file for the benefit, is exempted. So to put a fine point on it, I could talk to a veteran three years before a need, uh, and let's let's use the Windward Foundation here. Let's say somebody has gotten a diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's, or they're showing symptoms of cognitive decline. We all know it often takes a while before we really need to have care come into the home or or we need to move to a different residential setting, right? We often have plenty of warning, not decades, but certainly a few years. Well, if people respond as soon as they know there's an issue, I can create one of these trusts or an elder law lawyer can create one of these trusts for the family. We can put $50,000 in it and shelter it we could put $50 million in it and shelter it. We could put $50 billion in the trust. And as long as this trust meets those requirements, that is to say, creditors can't come and take the money away. The VA says, good on you. Great. Thanks very much. And to reward you, we'll let you keep your $50 million and we will give you your aid and attendance benefit uh, on top. So that $138,000 is a very misleading number. <laughs> That's yeah, really what like applies to people who walk in in a crisis uh, yeah. and say, I haven't done anything in advance. Uh, we, we still have some flexibility, but with, a, with planning, we can do much, much more. Well, that's interesting because I know I have friends whose parents of aging and they're trying to get benefits through Medicare and stuff like that. And they're moving all assets around and things like that. And it, it's a, it's kind of a, a, a big mess. So, so what, so in the end, like what is included, like your bank accounts, right. And um, any other, like would like jewelry and things like that be considered, you know, part of net worth. So the, where, where, where the, uh, we're all used to, 
accountants or or H and R Block, right? When we do our taxes, right? Uh, we we all come in excited with that paper bag full of receipts, and and we think we're going to get what we're we're going to have deductions that these expenses are going to become deductions, and then a couple of weeks later, the accountant or the tax preparer. Uh, educates us on the difference between expenses and deductions. Expenses hurt, deductions have a little bit of help. In my world, we've got essentially the same kind of a test, except we use the phrase countable resources. It's not assets, it's countable resources. You're allowed to have all the assets you want, you can only have $138,000 of countable resources. So the reason we're able to shelter an unlimited amount in an appropriately designed Veterans Asset Protection Trust is that under the law, that money is no longer a countable resource. The car that you use to go to the doctor, even if it's a Rolls Royce, is not a countable resource. Your personal property is also not a countable resource. Now, you can imagine that the government and the lawyers have fought about this for a while. You know, your bag of collectible gold coins to the IRS is not tangible personal property. That's not like your sofa and your TV. They view those as investments. If you've got a Picasso painting on your wall, uh, I, I assure you they're going to take the position that that's an investment like a stock or a bond, even though it's hanging on your wall just like that crushed velvet picture of Elvis. Uh, they'll exempt the crushed velvet picture of Elvis, but they're not going to exempt the Picasso. The, the point here is get it some educated assistance to make sure that those things that are uh, countable are fitting within the limits. If you're looking for a rule of thumb, the rule of thumb is if the nursing home could come and take it and turn it into money easily, that's a countable resource. So a bank account, a, a retirement account, uh, stocks or bonds, yes. Your house, because you live in it and it shelters you, is exempt. Uh, the furniture that you sit on is exempt. And since 2018, any vehicle that you own <laughs> is exempt as well. We don't generally encourage people they take the empty their investment accounts and buy RVs. But that is one way you could take something that's countable mm -hmm. and make it non-countable. Turns out that RVs really aren't that great a long-term investment. Um, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. like to find, we like to use those trusts to shelter those assets. Yeah. So, so what about um, double? Di I mean, can you? So, let's say you're getting some Medicare benefits. My guess would be that would count towards your income coming in. And that kind of income test of, are you able to, are you spending more than you're getting in? So if you're, let's say you've got social security and you're getting some medical benefits um, and you're coming out positive at the end of the month, you may not qualify, but if you're still not able to cover all your expenses with Medicare and social security, then you could potentially qualify for this program. Is that yeah. accurate? Uh, yeah. Well, you're, you're the, that dog will hunt. You're you're on to the issue. 
So social security is uh, always going to be considered regular countable uh, income. Medicare, if, uh, if you get a benefit, if you go to the hospital and Medicare covers $20,000 of ICU expenses, that's not going to be um, uh, uh, counted as, uh, as income. In fact, quite the opposite, to the extent that you have to pay $300 a month for your supplemental insurance, which most people have to wrap around their Medicare, that is an unreimbursed medical expense. So uh, we typically find your, our average senior is already coming in with some deductions from their regular income because they always typically have a Medicare Advantage or a Medicare Supplemental Plan or a, a Part D a drug plan that's an unreimbursed medical expense. The value of the health care that you receive is not treated as uh, income. Now, there's a third category that we should talk about. There are the three great senior benefits to all Americans outside of the veteran program are Social Security. Congress designed a three-legged stool to help keep our, our seniors stable and safe financially. The three legs in that stool are Social Security, which is supplemental income to live on, food, roof over your head. The second one is health insurance, because most of us lose our health insurance when we retire. So that's Medicare, health insurance for seniors. These are not welfare programs. Warren Buffett gets Social Security and Warren Buffett gets Medicare, right? Because he paid for those things. We've also paid for something called ABD Medicaid. This is not Medicaid health insurance, which is a welfare program for people on food stamps. ABD stands for Aged, Blind, and Disabled, and it is a long-term care benefit only for seniors, and it's the third leg in the stool. So enough money to eat, enough money to pay the hospital bill and the doctor bills, that's Medicare, and then if you need care at a nursing home or home, ABD will pay for it. You mentioned the phrase double dip, and most of the time we hear that in our office, folks will come in and say, hey, I'm a U.S. citizen, I'd love to have my ABD benefit, but I also was in Korea in uh, the 1950s, or I was in the Army during Vietnam. Can I get the ABD long-term care benefit and the VA aid and attendance benefit at the same time? The answer is complicated. There's a shock, right? Um you get about $50 more if you apply for both at the same time. But here's an interesting twist. We have a number of clients in our office where, let's say, the husband is the vet. The husband is starting to deal with a cognitive decline like Alzheimer's. He's using his VA aid and attendance benefit. While at the same time, his wife, who had a stroke three years ago, may be in a nursing home and is using the ABD, they can get both of those at the same time, just not the same person. Now, if that's not confusing, let me tell you an anomaly, uh, and it has to do with the way the feds wrote the law. Let's say Rory Clark was a vet. 
Rory served during wartime and he's, uh, I'm not 65 yet, but I'm getting close. Let's say I was eligible for aid and attendance. I could file for aid and attendance. I could file for ABD and I'd be about 50 bucks ahead. But what about Rory's wife? Here's the interesting uh, thing. The wife is allowed to get both because to the surviving spouse, um, it's uh, a different category of uh, of a benefit. So actually, we can we can have a surviving spouse continue to get a service connected disability based on their husband or wife's service, and they can get aid and attendance on top. And then we might even be able to extend benefits by doing uh, ABD on top. My point here is to say this wasn't a, a, a legal lecture where people are going to walk away saying, oh, hey, I'll do this in category A, B, and C. It's that people should look at it because um, it, it isn't just a simple yes or no. There are ways to stack these things. The most common way to stack them is uh, chronologically in time. Dad maybe pays out of pocket for a little bit of help. Then he's eligible for aid and attendance. Uh, after three years. Then he moves to a nursing home, and then we move up to the much more uh, unlimited ABD benefit. So the point is, one should not just say, I've got the VA, I've now, I'm now, uh, you know, I've got my one benefit, and I'm precluded from anything else. Absolutely not. You should look at the other benefits that are available. There can be stacking, but most generally we can use them one after the other to come up with a better result for the family. So you always want to find out all the benefits that you have. Which is why you can be such a benefit to families. You know, that trying to navigate this is no um, is no easy feat. I, I kind of speak from experience in dealing with a permanently disabled veteran and trying to navigate the VA. Um, it is uh, not for the faint of heart, for sure. Well, that's funny that you, you know, you say that because, uh, and this is, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but um, the VA is charged with helping veterans, and by extension, their surviving spouses, maximize the benefits that they're entitled to because of the service to the country. But we all hear stories about how people are frustrated, they seem to get contradictory information, or they get wrapped up in the red tape and they never seem to come out. Uh, and, And without trying to dig into that, my experience is that the people at the agency are doing their best to enforce the rules as they're told that they should enforce them. And it's not their job to be your lawyer. And uh, so they will often answer a question truthfully. Someone comes to the counter and says, I've got $150,000 in the bank account. Can I get VA in attendance? Well, because they're not lawyers and they're not allowed to advise these people and say, well, go buy a Camry and, <laughs> and then you'll be eligible. They can't give them advice. The only thing they can say is, no, you're not. And then people walk away saying, oh, well, you know, I, I I don't have anything going for me. All that, you know, marching and shooting at me, you know, I get nothing for it. Well, so um, the point is having a guide who has been through the storm before, who sort of knows the issues 
is really very helpful. One of the examples I give is the the man who runs the 401k plan for my firm, the financial advisor, very smart guy. He applied for VA in attendance for his own father before he knew me. And it took him 18 months to get his father's application approved. The other side of that, when I applied for my dad, who was a Marine in World War II, we had his approval in five weeks. What's the difference? The intelligence of the person who did the application? No, Ed's probably smarter than me. But I just know which hallway to go down <laughs> and what doors to knock on in the right order so that I don't get uh, you know, left in a long line for a, an extended period of time. Probably like... Uh, Dental, uh, having root canal or anything else, you want to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing and has experience uh, with it because they can save you a lot of pain and delay. So, Roy, that's all that information is just, just fascinating. Thank you for all that and the detail you went into. Um, I know that sometimes working, I personally haven't, but Michelle has, right? As she mentioned, worked with the VA and v, working with the VA can be challenging. So how difficult do you find the process of applying for this program to be? And what are some of the, you know, gotchas that people, you know, need to be educated on? That that is a fantastic question, uh, because I think most people are unaware that uh, it is a crime. It is against the law for anyone to charge a veteran or surviving spouse to apply for benefits like VA aid and attendance. If somebody walks in the door eligible, we will, out of gratitude and certainly wanting to stay on the right side of the law, will prepare and prosecute those applications for them. There are veteran support agencies that will do that as well. Um, what you need to understand is that not everybody is eligible and it is appropriate and perfectly legal for people to do planning to make people eligible so that their application will be approved. So elder law lawyers and uh, others can do arrangements, create these kinds of trusts, and they can charge a fee for that. But for filing the application, they cannot charge a fee. There are some, I call them scoundrels out there, uh, who hold themselves out as veteran service companies that charge considerable fees to help people secure, and they, they use very, very careful language because they know they can't say, we're applying for you or we're charging you to apply. But I've seen veterans be bilked ten dollars to $20,000 by companies saying we're going to help connect you for a benefit that the person may absolutely be entitled to, that you could go to one of these veterans agencies or to an elder law lawyer and, and file for absolutely free. And But because they're not lawyers, they can't do any financial planning for you. They can't do any estate planning for you. They charge you 10, 15,000 bucks to essentially download the website and send you a paper copy of the information that's publicly available to you. And they justify that as giving you information about your eligibility. And then people are stunned to find out they paid all this money and they didn't even get an application because that would be against the law. So there are absolutely scam artists out there. 
And the takeaway folks need to know is that lawyers doing legal planning for you may charge an appropriate fee. And that typically has benefits way beyond VA. You know, you're getting a will, you're getting powers of attorney, you're getting this asset protection. But the filing of the application is always free. The other thing people need to know is that those of us who do these applications, we have to have a special kind of a bar admission. Most folks are aware that, you know, I I practice in New York. I have a New York license, but I can't practice in California. We do that state by state. But in the federal government with the VA, there is a nationwide credentialing. Actually, it applies to 17 territories and Washington, D.C., because these laws are only federal. So you may have somebody, so let's say we're talking to uh, a a, a man in New Mexico who has a mom who lives in Illinois, and mom was a veteran. She was a a whack or a wave in World War II, or she was a a nurse in, you know, Vietnam. He wants to apply for her aid and attendance. And he's like going, oh, my Lord, am I going to have to fly to Illinois to find a lawyer to complete this application? He probably has a local lawyer right there in, what did I say, New Mexico, who is perfectly capable of applying for mom, even though mom's in Illinois, because Illinois doesn't enter into it. New Mexico doesn't enter into it. It's all federal VA law. And finding somebody who's near to home with the caregiver is, in our opinion, usually the key. And so you don't have to worry about crossing state lines when you're talking about VA benefits. So I was actually going to ask you about that because I know that your office is located in Leesburg, Virginia. But if a fan, you know, we work with families across the country. So a family who might be in California or Florida could, in fact, reach out to you for help with VA aid and attendance benefit. Sure. We're certainly help uh, willing to help um, guide them. Um, we will do the applications for sure. Uh, if folks want to do some more sophisticated uh, planning, if they need to arrange assets to get under that financial uh, net worth goal, for example, we may need to uh, tap a friend or a colleague in their jurisdiction to make sure that it's actually a valid Arkansas trust as well as meeting the federal rules. But that's uh, that's the way it works. You you find the person you want to assist you, and then they assemble a team to make sure you get over the goal line. But once we've got the person arranged, absolutely, I could file a VA application for a person living in American Samoa and happy to do it. Yeah, really good to know. I want to go back just on one question, um, and it might be an obvious question, but I, I can see someone asking this. When you're talking about the income requirements and regular income that's counted, is VA benefits, like non-taxable VA benefits, is that included in your regular income? So a, a, a permanently disabled veteran that receives benefits every month. Is great that question. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I get that. No, and that is, a, that is a great question. So, and I was kind of touching on this before. So when, let's say, let's take an example, because I think this will help people understand the nature of the question you're asking. So let's say we've got a uh, a, a man who, uh, 
fell off a ladder in the PX during Vietnam and is 100% service-connected disabled, right? He fell off the ladder, didn't get shot, but he was injured during his service, right? And he's getting that uh, disability benefit. The VA law says you must, that veteran must choose. He can take either his service-connected disability or his aid and attendance benefit, but he cannot, this is an example where he cannot double dip himself. Typically, we find out that 100% service-connected disability is generally higher than the aid and attendance, but if we're 80 or 70% disability, usually the aid and attendance is higher. So the vet will select the aid and attendance and forego the other. But here's the interesting thing. For the surviving spouse of the 100% service-connected disabled, that's not disability to the spouse. They call it, there's an acronym for it, but it's a survivor benefit. So interestingly, the surviving spouse of that vet who fell off the ladder could get 100% 100% of the what was the service-connected disability payment of her husband and get aid and attendance on top. It's crazy that the surviving spouse who never served can effectively double dip when the veteran, who was the one who could have been shot at, can't double dip, but it's a really queer thing in the rule. So the vet has to choose between service-connected or aid and attendance Generally, aid and attendance is higher unless we're at 100% service connected, but the surviving spouse doesn't have to make that Hobson's choice. They can take their survivor benefit related to the service-connected disability and get aid and attendance on top. And, I, you know, sometimes I joke and I say these rules were written by the, you know, it's the, it's the Lawyers Full Employment Act that some lawyer wrote the rule to make sure that people have to come and talk to the lawyer to, because there's no logical reason for that. If anything, it should be the opposite, right? We favor the vet who was at risk for the country, but this is the one time the surviving spouses actually have a benefit that exceeds the veteran, um, him or herself. Thanks for asking that question. Yeah. That's That's super super interesting. interesting. That's so interesting. So the key takeaway here for me is, if you have any connection to service to the country, you need to look into this program, right? Absolutely. So, um, and we covered a lot of information here, but I would still probably pick up the phone and call you. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate you coming on and shedding some light on this VA aid and attendance benefit. And I uh, thank you for your expertise. I had absolutely no idea this thing existed. And um and it's really could be really valuable to people. So we'll include all your contact information in the show notes. But what is the best way for families to get in touch with you regarding this or other programs in your law practice? Two very simple ways. One is to find us on the internet. We're at legacyelderlaw.com. Uh, or if you're on your cell phone and you want to send an email or any other uh, way, uh, the best way to reach out to us is at info, I-N-F-O, at LegacyElderLaw.com. And uh, that comes to my inbox and it comes to my client services director and we'll reach out uh, right away. People can come to the website, gather information, including information on the VA aid and attendance program, and they can even set an appointment if they'd like to have a uh, free consultation. 
Rory, thank you so much for your time today and, and really for all that you're doing for aging adults and their families. Uh, we really appreciate you. Thank you. It's a labor of uh, love and uh, doing it for my you know, dad, who was in the occupation force in uh, Japan in World War II. Uh, it was great to help him get a reward for uh, his service. And I really love helping other veterans uh, get something back for what they do. They, they've given so much and uh, get so little, uh, especially in terms of uh, respect and financial support. Um, we, we love doing everything we can to support them. Well, thank you for coming on. And I'll echo Michelle. You know, we appreciate all the work that you do um, for elderly and veterans. You know, So thank you very much. So with that, I think we'll, uh, we'll end the podcast. And thank you very much, Rory. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you, Sean. Thank you.